I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Chasing Ghost in a Regular Warfare podcast. Today's episode is entitled CG Goes to the Movies, Red Dawn from 1984, not the 2012 movie. So my uh, sons and I have been watching this movie since it came out and since they've been young and really enjoyed it. I like John Milius as a director. I enjoyed the original film and we had the opportunity to watch in the past month. And I just thought, well, maybe what I can do is I can find a way where we can intersect popular culture with a regular warfare. And this may be the entree to do that very thing. John Milius, the director, has a a, um, reputation in Hollywood as being somewhat right wing. And he has been the director of some terrific films like The Wind and the Lion, which had the great line, Petacaris Alive or Raisuli Dead. I'll let you look that up. Conan the Barbarian, just before he did the direction of Red Dawn. He was a director on the Twilight Zone TV series and a really fascinating World War II Pacific theater movie that not too many folks have seen called Farewell to the King. He did Flight of the Intruder. And a number of other uh, writing efforts and uh, TV series and TV projects that he had done. Those of you who haven't watched the 1984 movie Red Dawn, I would urge you to give it a try. See what you think. Some find it jingoistic. Some find it syrupy. Some find it not very realistic. It is set in the near future where America is invaded not only by the Russians, but by their Nicaraguan and Cuban confreres who slice apart the U.S. and cut it in half. And later on, it's all about a small guerrilla band that arises from some some high school students in Calumet, Colorado, who take the war to the occupying enemy via guerrilla tactics. You will recognize some of the stars, like Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Leah Thompson, Ben Johnson, Harry Dean Stanton, Ron O'Neill, William Smith, and the inestimable Powers Booth, who does a great turn as an Air Force colonel. Milius wanted Robert Blake to play the uh, Air Force colonel, but he was overridden by MGM, and they cast Powers Booth, and I think Powers Booth did a tremendous job in that role. John Milius is a curious cat, especially a curious cat in Hollywood, because he does happen to be right of center, conservative, libertarian, however you wish to characterize him. And Not only uh, did he work on this and the other films that I had mentioned before, but he had a hand in helping George Lucas with Star Wars. And for those of you who do any cultural critiques whatsoever of Lucas's original Star Wars films, clearly, and Lucas himself admits to this, it was all about trying to cast the United States as the bad guys in the Empire and the Vietnam War something as an exegesis for, for Lucas's thoughts on that very thing, as the rebels. And of course, this uh, struck a chord with Milius, and I think that he sort of carried that forward here. As a matter of fact, 
Some said that in Apocalypse Now, in which he also had a hand in, Robert Duvall's character, the colonel in Apocalypse Now, was based on Milius. A writer by the name of Peter Bart wrote a book in 1990 called Fade Out, The Calamitous Final Days at MGM, in which he talked about some of the -the behind-the-scenes sausage-making that went on with this. Alexander Haig just so happened to be on this project. He was one of MGM's executives, and he wanted Milius to direct. So Milius was given a script. He set about rewriting the script, and he and Alexander Haig devised a backstory in which the circumstances of the invasion would occur. This was reportedly based on Hitler's proposed plans to invade the U.S. during World War II. Now, Haig took Milius under his wing, bringing him to the Hudson Institute, the conservative think tank founded by Hermann Kahn, to develop a plausible scenario. Milius saw the story as a third world liberation struggle in reverse. Haig introduced Nicaragua and suggested that with the collapse of NATO, a left-wing Mexican government, what other kind is there, would participate in the Soviet invasion, effectively splitting the U.S. in half. Bart says in his book, even Milius was taken aback by Haig's approach to the project. This is going to end up as a jingoistic flag-waving movie, Milius fretted. As a result, the budget of this once $6 million movie almost tripled to $18 million. It was successful at the box office and had a half-life that took on a life of its own after it went to DVD at the time, and maybe even VHS since this was 1984. They did manage to double the amount of money they had invested in producing the movie at the box office. The critical reaction, of course, was what you would expect. I found that with Rotten Tomatoes, for instance, now, especially with the woke criticism that infects so much of movie criticism and the corporate media that that, uh, that has given us such awful content in the last decade, you can look at what Disney's doing to itself as a, as a form of cultural seppuku. As an example, that I use the audience scores more so than the critic scores. Critic scores, if they're high, that tends to wave me off of watching a movie, and I rely almost exclusively on the audience scores. Uh, Red Dawn received mixed reviews, receiving a rotten 52% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 27 reviews with an average of 5.6 out of 10. Uh, The website's consensus reads, and I quote, An appealing ensemble of young stars will have some audiences rooting for the Wolverines, but Red Dawn's self-seriousness can never conceal the silliness of its alarmist concept. Now, mind you, what I've discovered is that if this has been produced in in a grainy black and white and they had reversed the invasion where it was a U.S. imperialist invasion of Russia or one of its third world shitholes, then it would have been lauded as a work of, of considerable cinematic brilliance because of what it did to portray the poor third world nations trying to obey their Soviet masters and being stymied at every turn by U.S. intervention. Now, mind you, you are listening to Chasing Ghosts in a regular warfare podcast, and I am probably patient zero when it comes to doubting the efficacy of every Western martial endeavor since 1945. And that will probably be the case here. But it doesn't mean that those who we opposed during the Cold War didn't have their own calamities that they visited upon themselves. The Afghansi in Afghanistan with the Soviet invasion between 79 and 89 is Exhibit A for this podcast. I did note in the scrawling credits, much like Star Wars in 1977, where it has that creeping text that starts going up to the top of the screen, where they're talking about what set everything in train 
for this invasion of the United States, they had made the claim in the movie that there was no invasion of the continental United States before this time. Well, that certainly isn't the case. If we look at World War II, for instance, and we find that not only did the Japanese invade the Aleutian Islands, but they managed with balloons that they had set aloft with explosives to kill Americans in the state of Oregon. So, on to the movie. When I saw the movie at first, and I saw it at the box office in 1984, I was enthralled with it. I was in the Navy at the time, and I was thinking, man, this is a lot of fun. And it, I did not know some of the plot holes that I would look at now and say, well, maybe that's a pretty lousy interpretation of how the events would roll out. But it is a work of cinematic fiction. It is a work that is speculative. It's a work that's trying to examine just what would happen if, unconventionally, the United States was invaded. Now, has the United States been invaded before? Of course it has. The War of 1812 to 1814. And it just so happens that uh, my birthday coincides with that very day in 1814 in which the British burned down the White House. Huzzah. So, some of the reviews. Jesse Walker, Reza Magazine, quote, The film outraged liberal critics, but further to the left it had some supporters. In a witty and perceptive piece for the nation, Andrew Kropkind called it the most convincing story about popular resistance to imperial oppression since the inimitable Battle of Algiers, which I recommend all my listeners to watch if they get the opportunity, adding that he'd take the Wolverines from Colorado over a small circle of friends from Harvard Square in any revolutionary situation I can imagine, end quote. As a matter of fact, for those of you who take the time to watch Battle of Algiers, you will notice that when the Chudnika, which is the Spetsnaz colonel, arrives in the latter part of Red Dawn to conduct a competent campaign in hunting down the Wolverines. His entry into the town is much like Jean Martin, the actor's uh, portrayal of Colonel Matthew in Battle of Algiers. Take a look, see what you think. One of my biggest intellectual, philosophical, and moral mentors in the world of ideas has been a fellow by the name of Murray Rothbard, and he argued that the film was not so much pro-war as it is anti-state. Quote, one big problem with the picture is that there is no sense that successful guerrilla war feeds on itself. In real life, the ranks of the guerrillas would start to swell, and this would defeat the search-and-destroy concept. In Red Dawn, on the other hand, there are only the same half-dozen teenagers, and the inevitable attrition makes the struggle seem hopeless when it need not be. Another problem is that there is no character development throughout through action, so that, except for the leader, all the high school kids seem indistinguishable. As a result... There is no impulse to mourn as each one falls by the wayside, end of quote. I drew that from his article, Red Dawn in the Libertarian Forum, which is archived from October 10th, 2016. I really enjoyed some of the kitschy little Easter eggs that Milius put in the film, such as John has a long mustache and the chair is against the wall, resistance broadcasts that everybody here who's seen it is familiar from 1962's film, the Longest Day, which I would also recommend as a pretty good war film. So does the film accurately capture how a regular warfare works? In this case, the conduct of an insurgency and the concomitant reaction by Russian and Cuban forces in conducting a counterinsurgency and, and later on bringing in more professional help to take care of said insurgency. Well, it, it does a fairly good job, especially for popular film. What we discover in this film, for instance, is that 
they aren't new to shooting. They aren't new to rifle culture. They aren't new to violence. They aren't new to fighting. These are Western rural kids, teenagers, led by Patrick Swayze in this small band of guerrillas who decide that they're going to take vengeance on what's been done to their families, their friends. And, and Patrick Swayze's and, and his brother, Matty, his character in the film, uh, what was done to their father at the re-education camp. That re-education camp, by the way, uh, there's a movie that's being shown to the American prisoners in the re-education camp. It's Sergei Eisenstein's Alexander Nevsky from 1938. Of course, there's fantastical parts to this, but that's because this is a movie. And maybe even like a TV series, which would be a longer format. But nonetheless, artistic license is taken. And the historical record isn't always recognized because sometimes it can be either sloppy, tedious, or too long, and they don't want to use that because they'll lose the story arc. Because story arcs in cinema tend to be hero emerges, hero fails, hero has tribulations, hero prevails in the end, even if said hero dies. Now, I find that one of my very favorite movies of all time, and I would say this movie may be the most accurate portrayal of how guerrilla warfare works, which is Lawrence of Arabia. I'll probably do an episode in the future on that very film, and it is my number one film of all time for so many reasons. Red Dawn doesn't have the literate scope or ambition to match what David Lean did with Lawrence of Arabia, nor was Lawrence of Arabia, even though there was a certain amount of artistic license and fiction in the narrative format of the film, it was based on real events, and Red Dawn, of course, was not. What I like about the film is that it shows the guerrillas making mistakes. It shows the counterinsurgents making mistakes, hence the appearance of the Hudnika, the uh, Spetsnaz colonel, who comes in later to clean up the mess that Colonel Bella and his cohorts have made with their attrition. And, and, he, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. At one point, once the Spetsnaz colonel comes in, he says, so let me get this straight. A fox comes and eats your chickens, your pigs see it, so you kill the pigs because of the civilian reprisals that Colonel Bella and his minions had taken part in, which is extraordinarily destructive in any scenario. What you find, for instance, in World War II is that it did nothing but stiffen the resistance when the National Socialists and the Germans were conducting what they called counter-bandit. They didn't call it counter-insurgents. They called it counter-bandit operations in all of their occupied countries. And reprisals were part of that. And all the reprisals did in the end, when one examines the evidence, is stiffen the spine of the resistance and increase the numbers of those who participated in those, whether they were trigger pullers, auxiliaries, or people who looked the other way. I was really amused watching the film, seeing how they portrayed the Russians and the Cubans and the Nicaraguans sloppily going about their business of occupying this town, expanding that oil spot, and going out in that the main objective they seemed to have was, yes, establish a bridgehead, yes, secure the sectors over 360 degrees that were expanding in an oil spot fashion from that bridgehead, and that any time there were sectors that had problems, in the first part of the movie, the instant thing that they would do is reprisals against civilians, which, as I mentioned before, does nothing to stop resistance from growing. Afghanistan is Exhibit A. 
And in the case of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, it wasn't reprisals against civilians as a deliberate policy. It was the use of drone attacks, night letters, nocturnal raids, and all of these kind of things that would inevitably scoop up, main, or kill men, women, and children, therefore stiffening the resistance of all the resistance organizations in, the, in Afghanistan, which of course numbered in the hundreds and weren't simply the Taliban. So when you look at the vast catalog of war films and then the subset of films that treat war less than conventional, more unconventional, as in this, since the end of World War II, there's been a, a great number of terrific films that have come out that treat this. I'd mentioned Lawrence of Arabia. I had mentioned Battle of Algiers, which I recommend all of my listeners go out tonight, rent that and watch it and see what you think. So back to the brass tacks. I've talked about the three pillars of insurgency, which is going to be grievances, which are real or perceived, narrative, and legitimacy. Now, with those, are there grievances? Well, families are killed. Uh, members of their families are imprisoned. So there's certainly motivation, real motivation, for these guerrilla fighters to take up the cudgel as they do. As far as the legitimacy of their fight, they are fighting a war on their own soil. There are some who contend that fighting on your own soil is the only just war that exists. And then, of course, there's the narrative. And the narrative in this case is always trying to capture that and take the high ground in driving that narrative home. Hence the graffiti of Wolverines, which, by the way, my two years in Afghanistan, on occasion, east to west, north to south, I would see Wolverines. And I even saw Wolverines in Arabic script several times on um, buildings, uh, terrain, whatever the case may be in Afghanistan. I thought, man, that's curious. But then again, I've also seen stars and bars flown in Afghanistan by resistance organizations. So our hardy band of guerrillas, who managed to have Powers Booth quite literally land among them when he parachutes out of his shot-down fighter aircraft in F-15, and he's asked, and I paraphrase, he's asked, well, how come he got shot down? He says, I got four of the five. So there it is. A bit of jingoism there. But nonetheless, under his military tutelage, and they even get a, a sense that if they continue the fight as they are, that they may parachute in some special forces advisors in the spring to help them prosecute the conflict more effectively. And throughout the film, and the film becomes a Greek tragedy in the end, and I, I kind of like that, by the way, because in the end, we all die, as do empires. In this case, both of the main protagonists, which would be Jed and Maddie, the brothers, who are not only the most able combatants, but they're also doing this to avenge their father, who apparently, it's alluded to, is not only imprisoned in the re-education camp, but later on they see him gunned down in front of a pit that they've uh, that they've unearthed to put all the bodies into. So it's vengeance, it's satisfaction, it's the notion that if they don't continue the fight, who will continue the fight? They're behind enemy lines, they're conducting themselves as guerrillas, they're conducting this insurgency, and of course, across the film, this being a fictional work, they get better and better and more able, and they have more and more weapons and more and more facility with said weapons, everything from Grenades to missiles, RPGs, and uh, small arms, 
and even some very large caliber RPD type weapons and things like that. So it's pretty impressive when you see the arc of training that is evidenced and by the body count that they start to stack up. Spoiler alert, in this film, only two of the protagonists end up surviving in this little uh, band of gorillas. And even Jed and Maddie, the two main protagonists, the brothers that I refer to, uh, it appears, and they don't, they sort of show it off camera, they die in the end. Like all films, one has to suspend their disbelief at the environment, at certain things that are done during the film. For instance, their use of horses, and to my eyes, no evidence of forage for the horses. Uh, the They're fighting in the Colorado winter months, even though the film was filmed in New Mexico. It is set in Calumet, Colorado, and it's uh, it appears to be from October to the spring is when this entire chapter of their life to include their demise at the end takes place during that six months over winter and it looks bloody cold and they have to deal with that. Other than that, I enjoyed the film. My sons enjoyed the film. They, um, they found it entertaining. I mean, if, if entertainment is the number one reaction one should have from a good film and interesting character arcs, interesting characters, a future that's not too far away set in, the 1980s in this case. film was produced in 1984, so it was a near-future film. One could call it sort of speculative fiction or science fiction. Very well done, very well executed. But then again, I've already been a fan of Milius's work before. And if you haven't seen The Wind and the Lion, that may be one of Sean Connery's best roles that he's ever played since he was Bond. Now, I'm a former military professional. I'm a military historian. And I know a lot of my listeners, as a result of correspondence with with you through um, my email and such reaching out to me. A lot of you are also professional military observers, historians and such. There's a lot of nits to pick in this film, but it is a film. One would be hard-pressed to find films that have been done in the past that are really true to the nature of military conflict. For me, Band of Brothers comes pretty darn close I found the Companion Pacific series almost unwatchable. Stop filming stuff in the dark. I'd like to see what's going on. In addition, as I mentioned before, Lawrence of Arabia is not only one of the most brilliantly lensed and beautiful films ever crafted, but Battle of Algiers is just extraordinary filmmaking and very, very true to its base and historical conjecture. Bottom line for me is Red Dawn... It's a very fun movie to watch, and I have watched it a number of times. Uh, it It is a politically charged movie if you look at it from that perspective. And I know that government supremacists, collectivists, commies, and leftists tend to be very sensitive to what's being portrayed on the big screen, major and minor. So they may have nits to pick with this that have nothing to do with the martial or speculative nature of the film itself. As I mentioned, grainy black and white, invaded by the imperialist United States, third worlders, fighting said imperialist army. I mean, watch Star Wars. That's what that's all about. So I plan on doing some more of these cultural forays in the future, something uh, to change the pace of the show and what we're doing. Show's very history heavy. Show's very heavy on concentrating on policy out outcomes and things like that. 
So every now and again, I will take this departure and we'll look at a cultural artifact and see how it relates to irregular warfare. So with that, I'll conclude this episode. And if you wish to get in touch with me with constructive comments or criticism, you can get in touch with me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. This is Bill, out.